Striking is a good term to describe George Flynn, and he is a man of enormous passion. Uh, his outward personality always was always welcoming, encouraging me to keep searching for the deeper emotions in the music. The thing about Flynn is when he sits down at the piano, he's got you. It's so compelling because his focus is so true. Pianist, mentor, musical activist. Composer George Flynn's voice is unique in the pantheon of American composers. From early beginnings in Yakima, Washington, through the tumultuous days of the Vietnam War and student riots in New York, to the establishment of a burgeoning new music scene in Chicago as the head of the composition department at DePaul University, Flynn and his music have touched countless lives. I'm Seth Bostead, and this is the first in a two-part series on relevant tones featuring the emotionally resonant music of composer George Flynn, who's with me today to talk about his musical development. I suppose that I, I would have to go back to Yakima to talk about my first great revelation musically, and that is when I found in the Yakima Public Library, way back around when I was maybe 15 or 16 years old, the first recording of Charles I's Concord Sonata. Mm-hmm. Having no idea about any mm-hmm. of it, I just took it home and listened, and it was love at first hearing, and it changed my life. to get my own copy. I had to somehow get the, get the score, the music, mm-hmm. and I wanted to go east to visit Charles Ives and tell him what I thought of his music. <laughs> was that the uh, John Kirkpatrick recording? Yes. Yeah, it's a fantastic recording. Yeah, yeah. I remember hearing that for the he first time. He says it took him 10 years to learn to play the piece. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> if, if you know the piece. <laughs> it's a phenomenally difficult piece. Yeah. That was, my, that was really very important to me. In Yakima, I was involved in all the choral societies that were there, as well as playing in the orchestra, violin and viola, and pursuing a number of things with the piano. And that continued. But I didn't realize what I wanted to do with music until later. Mm -hmm. And that was really determined while I was living in Chicago for a couple of years. And then I decided I had to go to New York in order to get my degrees Mm -hmm. and really do it right. And were you involved in all the third stream type of things that were going on in New York at that time? Uh, in New York, I was up at Columbia University where, of course, we studied a lot of the academic stuff. And I had an opportunity, thankfully, to listen to the group for contemporary music. Charles Wernon, Harvey Soberger, uh, and Joel Krosnick were part of that group. And they had this trio, and they played a lot of contemporary music. And Milton Babbitt was a very important influence at the time. Mm. Meanwhile, I was downtown feeling very comfortable playing at the new school where John Cage and his people were involved, as well as the Tone Rose people, who were reviving Ides music. Mm-hmm. We'll have to so do a I whole show down- on the uptown, downtown oh, New York yeah. scene well, someday. <laughs> but my music probably would be characterized as not uptown or downtown, but somewhere in the middle, midtown. Midtown. That would be <laughs> midtown music. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and when did you move to Chicago? How did you come here? Um, I came to Chicago. Uh, I was at Herbert Lehman College for a couple of years after being at Columbia. And 
a job opened up here at DePaul University. Well, there were five jobs, actually, that I applied for and was accepted in all five of them. This was the best one, Chair of Musicianship Studies and Composition at DePaul University. Mm-hmm. And you would hold that post for a I while. held that post from the time I came to Chicago in 1978, I believe, until 2002. Mm-hmm. And the next piece that we're going to listen to, you wrote in Chicago in 1988, yes. and that's called Till Death. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I was sitting in a restaurant with a friend of mine, and he says, how do you go about writing a piece of music? And I said, well, it depends upon the day and your mood and everything else, but let's start a piece right now. I won't write it. I'll describe it. Let's make this for violin and piano. Both the instruments start in an amiable way in the middle register, and gradually the violin goes higher and higher and the piano goes lower and lower till we have these very soft high sounds in the violin and low soft sounds in the piano. Then they come back together again to the amiable kind of conversation they were having at the beginning. He thought that was a very interesting idea. I did too. I went home and wrote (laughs) that piece. And that part of this piece is what we will hear right now. Great. Let's have a listen. Till death. And this is you on the piano with uh, Catherine Hughes on violin. Thank you. 
piece that represents an amiable conversation between two people called Till Death. And the title, of course, makes me think, are, are these people, are they lovers? Is it Till Death Do Us Part? Yes, that, that's the, the whole idea. Of course, if you listen to the whole piece, you see that not everything is always amicable. <laughs> but it does end in a friendly, loving way. Mm-hmm. I've been married just long enough to yeah, know. Right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so Till Death is a mature work, really from 1988, about mid-career. Let's have a listen to something very, very early. This is a piece called Fuging, a very playful solo piano piece from 1962. This is George Flynn performing his own piece, Fuging.
We just heard a short piano piece by George Flynn, uh, performed by George Flynn, and that was Fuging from 1962. Uh, so George, you got started in music early on, and then when you finished high school, you went on to um, study music at uh, Columbia. Well, I was in the Army for a couple of years, and then I lived in Chicago for two or three years before finally deciding that I knew what I wanted to do and moved to New York in order to study at Columbia University. Uh-huh. And uh, then I pursued graduate st- uh, studies immediately after that okay. at Columbia and got all my degrees, my doctorate and everything from Columbia University and taught there part-time and then full-time. Mm-hmm. We have another piano piece. This one is intriguing to me because uh, the Bangkok Post called it the most violent piano piece ever written. First of all, not many people get reviewed in Bangkok. And secondly, wow, what a review. Can you tell us a little bit about this piece, Wound? Uh, Wound was written in 1968. It was my first year at Columbia University as a full-time faculty member. And the Great Tet Offensive occurred in, 19, in January of that year, in which the Vietnamese told us we would never win that war. Then, April 4th, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And meanwhile, there were demonstrations constantly throughout the city as well as on Columbia University campus. Then on April 22nd, SDS, Students for Democratic Society, closed the campus down. And I was involved day and night with that because I was a member of the radical faculty group. Meanwhile, I continued writing this piece, which I premiered in May of that year down at the uh, New School for Social Research as part of the Tone Roads concert series. That was the first time I played it. So the piece really is a 1968 piece occurring within all of this stuff that was going on. And for me, it was a wound of the body as well as of the body politic. Thank you. 
An excerpt from Wound, a piano piece by George Flynn, again performed by the composer. George, another big piece from this time. Uh, actually, I find this piece interesting in, in, in several ways. Um, it was sketched in 1974. It's called Songs of Destruction. Again, it's another big anti-war piece, but you didn't finish it until 2006. What can you tell us about Songs of Destruction? There are a set of five songs, and at the time, I was really into the anti-Vietnam War uh, stuff and was reading historians about why we would go over to Vietnam for so many years and try to destroy that tiny little country. And they likened our activities to, in Vietnam to the way we treated the American Indians. And so some of the songs of destruction actually combine victims in Vietnam as well as the American Indians. So, for example, the second song deals with that, Before the Deluge, before the iron monsters come to destroy us and raise your children and have a wonderful life and all that sort of thing. And I saw that this was a way of combining the two things. The fourth song, uh, In the Great Night, actually is an Indian death chant, and uh, it's an elaborate setting. Uh, The fifth song, the one that we would be dealing with here, uh, Death Has Won the Soul Now, says, you know, death has won the soul, but life cries out. Remember all these wonderful things and about life and all that. But gradually death takes over and eventually all becomes silent. And that's essentially what happens with the fifth song. And that sort of summarizes all of the songs because I was in a very (laughs) dour mood at the time when I was sketching these out. However, I never finished them. And they remained sort of like sketched out, but nothing more than that, until I was commissioned by a works and process group in New York City to uh, set a, a poem by James Tate. And doing that reminded me that these songs were somewhere in the closet, and I dug them out and decided, looked them over and decided they were worth finishing. So I finished them in the years 2007 and 2008. And what, what we're hearing uh, with these songs is the finished version that is recent as opposed to the original sketches, which go back to the mid-'70s. So let's have a listen to the fifth song, Death Has Won the Soul, from the Songs of Destruction.
Soprano Lila Bowie singing Death Has Won the Soul, the fifth in the cycle Songs of Destruction by composer George Flynn, who was also the pianist on that recording. I'm Seth Bosted, the host of Relevant Tones. This is the first in a special two-part series celebrating the music of George Flynn. For more information about Relevant Tones, find us on Facebook or on our website, relevanttones.com. All through the late 60s and early 70s, there were anti-Vietnam War protests all across the country, and nowhere more so than in New York City, where George Flynn was a student at Columbia University. And as a a social activist, a musician with a conscience, as a humanist, he couldn't help but be appalled by the atrocities being committed on a nearly daily basis in Vietnam. We heard two pieces, Wound and Songs of Destruction, that are directly related to the Vietnam War. We're going to hear another work now called American Rest. George, what part of the Vietnam War is American Rest referencing, and what inspired it? I started this piece originally in 1975, which was the year that we were driven out of Vietnam. And I felt at the time it was time for America to rest. But the rest is full of nightmares. It's not a peaceful rest. Until at the very end of the piece, it's an hour-long piece, at the very end, we finally have a lullaby that truly comes to rest, but also, in my mind, represents death. My obsession in this piece consists of a perfect fifth and a tritone. And the tritone represents, traditionally, the devil of music, and the perfect fifth, the angelic interval. The devil in the interval, I felt that was us. So that became my obsession for the entire piece. And the instrumentation recalls another great wartime piece, the Quartet for the End of Time by Messiaen. Yes, it does. I changed the violin to a viola, darker color, but otherwise it's the same as Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time that he wrote in Stalagate in 1941. Let's have a listen now to Introduction and Lullaby from American Rest by George Flynn, Larry Combs on clarinet, Keith Conant on viola, Chris Costanza on cello, and Stuart Leach on the piano.
It's a beautiful ending as the piano fades away, and I couldn't help but notice that it's fading away on the perfect fifth, which is the angelic side of the piece. Yes. Is that an optimistic ending? I suppose you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Maybe there's some hope after all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Introduction and Lullaby from American Rest by George Flynn. Now, many composers do transcriptions of their pieces for other instruments in order to facilitate additional performances or at the request of other performers. Uh, you have done another version of this piece for piano, but it's not, strictly speaking, a transcription. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it really isn't. I realized that there were some piano solos embedded in that piece that I could extract from it, a series of nocturnes. And I did so. There are three of them, three nocturnes called Pieces of Night. And I wrote two new works that fit in between the nocturnes called Myoclonus One and Myoclonus Two. Myoclonus is the medical term for muscle twitch, usually the twitch that you have when you're going to sleep at night trying to relax. Well, these nocturnes are essentially kinds of nightmares, I suppose, turmoil. And what I've prepared for our session here is the middle part of the middle nocturne, which is really quite nightmarish, using a lot of clusters in the piano. Mm -hmm. And we're going to listen to Deep Sleep and Nightmare, and this is George Flynn playing the Nocturnes from American Rest.
Well, that certainly sounds like a pianistic nightmare to me. What really intrigues me and what I really like so much about American Rest uh, that I think it, it makes it so successful are, of course, the parallels to another famous war piece, the Quartet for the End of Time by Messiaen, but now with the viola replacing the violin for an even darker sound. The uh, successful extraction of many of the movements as, as solo cadenzas I also think is quite interesting. But what I really like is that it, it kind of spans two important periods in, in Georgia's musical development. Um, it was started in New York in 75, right after the Vietnam War had come to, uh, to a conclusion. But it was finished up in uh, the 80s in Chicago. And uh, by that time, George had accepted a position as the head of composition at DePaul University, where he would spend the bulk of his career. And at DePaul University, you would meet a kindred spirit, fellow new music enthusiast and virtuoso violinist for whom you would write several fantasy etudes for violin. And that, of course, was Eugene Gradovich. Here's Eugene talking from a performer's point of view about these fantasy etudes. The format of the etudes was to invite two uh, string players and two composer pianists and George Flynn was the composer pianist and and I wanted to get their perspective from their experience of working with string players and George wrote a wonderful piece that is for two violins but I uh, because of the ensemble issue and the rhythmic issues I recorded myself I recorded the first track and then played the second track, and that we can do with the modern, modern way of uh, uh, recording engineering. But these were, were called fantasy etudes, so that the idea being that you can perform them also in the style of Paganini. It's challenging to the violinist, but also having a musical content behind it. Let's have a listen then. Here are the first and second movements of the fantasy etudes for violin, performed by Eugene Gradovich.
That was Eugene Gradovich performing Fantasy Etudes number one and two for violin by George Flynn. Those etudes were written especially for Eugene Gradovich, who was at that time the head of the string program at DePaul University, where, of course, George Flynn was the head of the composition program and a very influential teacher. On the second in this series of programs devoted to the music of George Flynn, we will talk more about him as an educator, um, as an important mentor for young composers, and as a very influential figure. And we'll also talk about his role as an entrepreneur and in creating a very vibrant scene in Chicago. I hope you can join us then. Relevant Tones is produced by Jesse McCorders at WFMT. For more information about the program and the artists we've featured, you can find us on Facebook or visit our website at relevanttones.com. Relevant Tones is made possible by the generous support of Grosvenor Capital Management, Carol Joins and Abby O'Neill, an anonymous donor, and the listener supporters of WFMT. I'm your host, Seth Bostead, and thank you very much for listening.